Let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Romans, the fourth chapter, and I want again to read the first 17 verses. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word. Romans chapter 4, this is the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Each of us children of Adam is proud and arrogant and self-centered, and that is why Paul's message is at once so necessary and so humbling. One of the great reasons that the preaching of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, has been so opposed so often in the history of the church is because it utterly humbles man into the dust and completely exalts God in his sovereign grace and mercy. And that is precisely one of the ways in which you know it to be true. For a person to truly know Christ, he must be stripped of his self-righteousness. One who comes to know Jesus is one who says, I have no merit, I have no righteousness of my own, I can bring nothing to God, 
whereby I would be accepted by him. There is not one stitch of my own righteousness in the righteous robe of Christ. It is completely and utterly by his righteousness and his alone that I am accepted in the presence of a holy God, and that is all my boasting. We do not know these things because we are wiser than others. We know these things only because God has revealed them in his word and has opened our hearts by the Holy Spirit and has granted us saving faith that we might receive Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. No one has ever been saved in any other way than the way in which I have just described. There has never in the history of mankind, there has never been one sinner that has been accepted by law-keeping. There has never been one sinner who has been received, accepted by God because of his work, because of his merit. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David. There has been no one who has been accepted except on the basis of Christ Jesus. Christ looked ahead to, by the Old Testament saints, Christ looked back to his cross apprehended by faith by us who have come after his shedding of his blood. And so he proves the point with Abraham. He proves the point with David. And what he's doing in this chapter in large measure is demonstrating that there has only been one way of salvation, acceptance with God, justification, and that is on the basis of the merit of Jesus Christ alone. But before we go on, I want you to look back with me at chapter 3 and notice verse 27, in which this whole theme of the merit of Christ and the, the, the utter, utter and, incom- and, and, and total inability of, of man to be justified in any other way is underscored when he says in chapter 3, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And so Paul in that verse, in chapter 27, of verse 27 of chapter 3, underscores to us that boasting is completely excluded because we are saved in no other way but through the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross and there removed God's wrath and made the way of acceptance for us sinners by the Father. So as we go on and we read these verses together tonight and we think through this passage, I want you to keep verse 27 of chapter 3 in mind. Because here in chapter 4, he is underscoring this very truth. So we looked at these verses from one angle last week. I want us to look at it from this angle this week. Boasting excluded. I want to make these points. First, boasting is excluded because our justification is by faith. Boasting is excluded because our acceptance with God is by faith. Again, look at verses 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Pointing back to Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the point here is simply this. 
If Abraham had been justified by works, he could boast. Now this is purely hypothetical. He adds, not with God, because it's purely hypothetical. But then he points to Genesis 15, 6, in which we find that Abraham was justified by faith, which says nothing about Abraham's works as contributing to his acceptance. That's his whole point. Rather, he uses this great word, impute. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him or counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Now this word impute is a very important one. It's something that should be in your everyday vocabulary. (laughs) This word impute or count or reckon. Charles Hodge put it this way, it is laying anything to one's charge and treating him accordingly. It produces no change in the individual to whom the imputation is made. It simply alters his relation to the law. Now that's extremely important because that's the great need that we sinners have of acceptance with God, a changed relation to the law. The law comes in all of its perfection. The law brings its condemnation, and we need a changed relation to the law. This happens by the imputation of righteousness to our account. We could spend all night looking at passages that help us to understand this, but let me read maybe a couple. In Leviticus chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, it says, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Blood guilt, in other words, will be reckoned to that man for his failure to obey the law of God. You will recall in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, as Stephen was stoned and became the first martyr of the church after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he says as he is dying and falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not impute it to them. That's his point. And this morning, I don't know if you noticed, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 16, uh, the Apostle Paul actually uses this term impute when he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, or may it not be imputed to them, may it not be reckoned to them. And so, he's speaking here of something that does not belong to you, that is ascribed to you. And what is ascribed to you? Righteousness. The very thing you need in your relationship to the law that you and I do not have by nature, because we are sinful and fallen. Righteousness. Oh, think of it, people of God. Think of it. Righteousness, a perfect record, is counted to your account when you believe in Jesus. When you receive Christ by faith, God in His holiness sees you as perfectly just and altogether righteous in His sight. Now, I think there can be some confusion because of the way in which Paul sometimes speaks here and the way in which we read him 
to think that it's actually faith that is reckoned. After all, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But it's not faith, strictly speaking, that is reckoned to us, but the merit that faith apprehends and receives that is reckoned to us. Notice how he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. But if we look at Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, we see the formula worked out in a little more detail in which the apostle in that passage, that glorious passage that uh, you know, when he speaks of whatever gain I had, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says in verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the point is this, that faith reckoned is simply Pauline shorthand, meaning the righteousness that faith apprehends is reckoned. It is not literally that my faith is reckoned, but faith representing the righteousness that is apprehended that is reckoned to my account. I hope that's clear to you because it's actually very important. And there's been a great debate during the Puritan era over this very thing. And uh, some real issues have hung upon the understanding of these issues. Faith that receives righteousness is not a work, but is a grace. Faith contributes nothing. Faith simply receives. Faith is simply the hand that receives Faith does not rely on faith. Faith relies on Christ. And the moment you believe on the Son of God, God counts you righteous. The moment that you believe on the Son of God, God counts you righteous in the righteousness of His Son, completely justified, The merit of Jesus, his perfect record, becomes your perfect record before the law of God. Which is why he says in chapter 8, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to the account of everyone who believes. And so I ask you, where is boasting? Boasting is excluded because the righteousness of Christ is received by faith. But also in the text, boasting is excluded because justification is not the reward of works. And so again in verses 4 through 8, not to the one who works his wage, now to the one who works his wages are counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now his point beginning there in verse 4 is simply 
is simply what we all know. A worker is compensated. If I have a, a leak in my roof and you come and I have a contract with you and I say, look, please do this, and uh, you agree to do it for so much money, that's contract. You work on contract. There's compensation involved. You do the work, I pay you. What does God owe us? If we work, if we are involved in this idea of acceptance with God on the basis of our works and our performance, on the basis of compensation, where would we be? Where would you be? Where? In chapter 6, verse 23 of this very book, he talks in terms of compensation when he says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know some folks who say the idea of merit has nothing to do with the Christian faith. Well, it's right here in this passage. What is a wage? It's merit, isn't it? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the merit that is actually granted to us, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the beauty of it is that boasting is excluded because justification is not the reward of works. And all around us there are folks, and you have been there too at one point in your life undoubtedly, that think that we can work our way into the acceptance of God, work our way into His heavenly home and heavenly kingdom, that we can do certain things by which we will be accepted. And it is so important to see that Paul the Apostle dashes that false hope against the wall because God owes us death as the wage for our sins, but He justifies the ungodly. He doesn't come to justify people who can work their way into acceptance. In chapter 5 of Romans, he says in verse 6, for while we were still weak or helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not die for good people. Jesus Christ did not come to be the physician for people who could heal themselves. The righteous, those who think they are whole, need not a physician. Jesus Christ came to shed His blood and to grant merit by grace solely on the basis of His accomplishment and achievement to ungodly people. And so I ask you, Have you ever acknowledged yourself to be a sinner? Have you ever come before the holiness of God and seen yourself to be a sinner? Do you see yourself, that is to say, outside of Christ, apart from Christ? Do you see yourself as ungodly? Because all through our culture, people think that they are accepted by their works I told you this before, I've been in many a prison cell and I've talked to someone that I'm thinking of right now who was later convicted of the most vile and evil thing that perhaps a man can do on the face of this globe, and certainly among them, who talked to me in terms of merit. Still thought there was something good whereby he could be acceptable to God. 
But when the Spirit of God begins to work in a man, a woman, a child, and shows us what we are really like before the holiness of God, then you see we become more like John Bunyan, who as he began, he cursed, he swore, he hated God, he hated God's people. God began to work in this man's life. And as he began to see how vile and ugly he was in the sight of God's law, in the sight of God's holiness, he said, I would have preferred to have been a toad rather than a man. Because men are accountable to God. And God took him down, down, down that he might see his need and his ungodliness. And that God forgives truly the ungodly Those who come with empty hands and who say, I have nothing of which to boast. Nothing. Get this and get it well. Let me herald it out. Sovereign grace excludes all human merit. Do you hear it? Sovereign grace excludes all human merit. And how dare I bring my work for acceptance with God when He demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And He demands that the debt be paid in full. And my friends, there is only one who has offered perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. And there is only one who could pay the debt that I owed. And that was Jesus Christ. The same is found in the case of David. And that's why Psalm 32 is quoted, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Do you need your lawless deeds forgiven? Whose sins are covered? Do you need your sins covered? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin, which is the negative way of saying, Blessed is the man to whom he does count righteousness. And in verse 8, when he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, it is in the Greek text, ume. It takes two negatives and pulls them together so you have the strongest negation that can be found in the Greek New Testament. And I'm truly happy when I feel my desert and I find grace in the promise of God in Christ alone. That's when I'm truly happy. And I'm truly miserable when I can fall back into old dark ways of thinking that I really have something to offer. Boasting, it is excluded because justification is not the reward of works. Thirdly, boasting is excluded because justification does not depend on rites and ceremonies. Rites, R-I-T-E-S, rites and ceremonies. No rite can justify a sinner. It's an obvious lesson but one that the Judaizers forgot and one that has been forgotten in the history of the church time and again. Ask Steve Sly about his recent trip to Rome. Ask him what he saw there. I'll let him tell you. Ask him. I'm serious. All through the history of the church, this simple truth has been forgotten. And there are three crucial points that Paul points out about circumcision. Let me simply list them. Circumcision had value. Value as a sign and a seal of something else, of the covenant of grace. Secondly, as an instrument of justification, 
circumcision was valueless. It had no value whatsoever. And the Judaizers were depending upon it. And circumcision is not a sign of what is attained by works, but what is received by faith. That's why the timing is all important here. Abraham was justified when he was uncircumcised. Paul's point is his circumcision contributed not one thing to his acceptance with God. So we come to today and we talk about sacraments in the church. Sacraments are important. They have value as a sign and seal of something else, the covenant of grace. But as an instrument of justification, sacraments are valueless. Baptism is not a sign of what is attained by works, but what is received by faith in Christ. When it is administered is not the point for us Abraham's descendants were circumcised in infancy. The point is, it's a sign of what God does, not what we do. So sacraments are not the ground of confidence. They point to the promise in which we are called to put our confidence. And that is their value. And many have been confused here. The whole idea of baptismal regeneration or of somehow acceptance through baptism, Charles Hodge says... This is a rock upon which millions have been shipwrecked. Don't you be shipwrecked here. Let there be no one here who is shipwrecked on the thought that something that I do that's churchy, it may indeed be very important, that something I do in the context of the body of Christ, that some of my service or my membership or the sacraments in which I participate, that somehow that contributes something to my acceptance with God. No, no, no. Boasting is excluded because justification does not depend upon rites and ceremonies. And then fourthly, boasting is excluded because the promise is not through the law. Reading again verses 13 through 15. Uh, Here we are told, for the promise... Now, when it says the promise, you know the essence of the promise is the gospel, Christ himself. You get that, don't you? When Abraham believes the promise, he's trusting in Jesus. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. To make the promise depend on works destroys the promise. Why? Because, as he says in verse 15, the law brings wrath. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. Law condemns. It cannot justify. Why does Paul underscore this? Because it's all of grace from first to last. To exclude boasting, and not by our works, that all glory might go to God. That's why Paul underscores this truth. Boasting is excluded because the promise could not be, could never have come through the law. And then fifthly, boasting is excluded because it's so obvious, but it has to be said, Boasting is excluded because justification is by grace. Thank God. 
And we read in verses 16 and 17, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You know, if you go back to Genesis 17, you find God saying in the covenant of grace, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times to my memory. I will. And here in verse 17, when we read, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, his point is that God, God's promise is as good as done. We are in danger of forgetting God's promise when we forget His character. Have we forgotten that He is the Almighty? Have you forgotten that your God, who is your Father, who has saved you in Christ, is omnipotent? Have you forgotten His attributes? We hardly know what worship is anymore because we have forgotten the greatness of the attributes of Almighty God. We need, a, need a, a good dose of old Reformed Puritan teaching on the existence and attributes of God, such as you find in that tome of Stephen Carnock. Our lives are weak indeed, by nature ungodly. By nature we are dead in trespasses and sins. We could not be saved if God did not accomplish it. And He has, and it is all of grace, all of grace, all of grace. So when the sinner actually sees himself for who he is, and he says to God, I'm so vile, I am so vile, and my faith is so weak, what hindrance is that to God, I ask you? What hindrance is that to God? Yes, you're vile. Can he cleanse you? Yes, you're weak. Can't he strengthen you? Yes, you're incapable. Can't he give you grace? What hindrance is that to God? Who is he? Do we have a low view of God? Let us not. Where then is boasting? Boasting is excluded because justification is by grace. Spurgeon, in a sermon on John 14, 5, well said, It is a remarkable fact that all the heresies which have arisen in the Christian church have had a decided tendency to dishonor God and to flatter man. They have always had for their covert, if not their open aim, the exaltation of human nature and the casting down of the sovereignty of divine grace. Robbing God of the glory which is due unto His name, these false prophets would shed a counterfeit luster upon the head of the rebellious and depraved creature, On the other hand, the doctrines of the gospel, commonly known as the doctrines of grace, are distinguished for this peculiarity above every other, namely, that they sink the creature very low and present the Lord Jehovah before us, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. There's a well-known minister, I won't tell you who he is, who's criticized me in the past because I preach down sinners and preach this up. 
Okay? So be it. (laughs) I think that's what the Bible teaches and what the Bible would have me do. And let me say what I've said to many of you before, and especially for the sakes of you young people. As you're learning God's Word and learning the Bible, and you hear something and you really can't put your finger on it, but it just doesn't sound right, but people are trying to attract you to it. You know, some teaching, some, some doctrine, some way of looking at the, at the faith just doesn't sound right to you. Here's the rule of thumb that you can apply. Does it exalt God? Does it exalt Jesus Christ? Does it put the crown upon the head of Christ? Does it put the diadem in the hand of Jesus? If it does, it's the truth. Does it exalt man? Does it put the crown upon the head of man? Does it exalt man? Does it put the diadem in the hand of man? Then it's not the truth. Because what is true will always exalt God in His sovereignty, Jesus in His dying love for sinners, the Holy Spirit in His efficacious grace. Always. If it contradicts that, it's not true. So who makes you to differ from another, I ask you? From where does acceptance with God come? Aren't you glad to know on this night in which you and I are totally incapable of contributing one thing to our acceptance with God that we can say by faith, it all comes from Jesus. Every bit of it, from first to last, comes from Him. So that if you will turn with me to Galatians, the sixth chapter, we find Paul's commentary on this passage in Romans. Or perhaps I should say Romans is the commentary on this since Galatians was written first. And we read in verse 14 of Galatians chapter 6. Be it far from me, Galatians 6, 14. Be it far from me to boast, except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, And I to the world. The authorized version put it, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord. So you see, you may boast. Indeed, you must boast and you should boast. Not in your work, not in your effort, not in your contribution, not in your merit. You and I have none. But we should boast in Jesus, boast in the cross, talk less of ourselves and more of Him and exalt Him. Let us be sure then of one thing. Let us be sure, people of God, as we go on in our Christian lives this week, I will not rob God of His glory. I will slay my self-sufficiency. May your thoughts and affections and devotions be determined by the sovereignty of God's grace. Was this not true of Paul when he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord? Was it not true of the great worthies of the church? What made the great worthies of the church great worthies? What made them worthies is not that they thought they had worth, but they thought that Jesus had worth. Their works were nothing. The sole value of their lives was the merit of Christ. And so we have a man like Robert Murray McShane who said, My soul, thy place is in the dust. My soul, thy place is in the dust.
And then let our song ever be, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. God's people said, Amen. Amen.